Welcome to the Connected Communication Podcast, the show which explores how much of communication is nature and how much is nurture, sharing speaking secrets along the way. I'm your host, Christine Malani. There is a word in Finnish, a word which has multiple meanings, a word which connected me and my next guest through a post on LinkedIn. Sometime, I think, if I remember correctly, in 2021. I'm a word lover, as many of you who are listening might know. I saw this post and got very excited about this word and all of the conversation about the fact that one word can have so many different meanings. Given my love of communication and connection, I, of course, had to jump in. And my jumping in and making that comment has led to a connection and uh, a friendship and uh, what I like to call maybe cheekily a bit of an inadvertent mentorship uh, over the past few years uh, that I am extremely grateful for. And my next guest is based in Finland, but a bit of a traveller, constantly on the go. An internationally recognised teacher and writer on cross-cultural management, corporate and government speaker and teacher on the Oxford programme on negotiation. A former radio producer at the Piccadilly radio station in Manchester working with now household names like Brian Cox and Chris Evans and my childhood favourite, Timmy Mallet. My guest has provided cross-cultural training in more than 40 countries to corporations such as Nokia, Microsoft, ByteDance, the owner of TikTok and many others. In 1997, he came up with and implemented a concept for the world's first online cross-cultural assessment and a cultural data resource, Culture Active, receiving in 2002 the most innovative technology award at the US Centre for International Business and Education Conference. Culture Active now has a database of over 100,000 users and I'm one of them. May I introduce with the greatest gratitude and respect, Michael Gates. Thank you so much, Michael, for being here. It's uh, always a pleasure to talk with you, Christine. Yeah, likewise, likewise. So as I've read through and, and talked through in your introduction, you have had quite a broad career in many different uh, rounds of communication. Before we go down the discussion of communication and communication through the ages, let me just remind listeners that the topic of this series is exploring through the nature and nurture of communication, how it has changed and adapted over the years, both for the person I'm interviewing, my guest, throughout their career, and also from their per- perception and, and experience of communication and its changes. Of course, technology comes into that conversation as well. But before we started recording today, Michael and I were trying to remember the word on that post that, that had uh, connected us in the first place. We think it may have been, what was it you said, Michael? Uh, well, it's it's two words, non-een. Non-een. yeah. Non-een, okay. Yeah. And you started to explain what that, the significance of that was. Well, it's, it, it depends very much on the context. And so um, non-een, it could be translated as well. But that doesn't really capture all of it because it depends very much on the situation. And, um, you know, I was just thinking of a few of the meanings. I mean, it could indicate surprise. It could also indicate a lack of surprise that, yes, things have turned out as I expected. Um, 
it's often used, uh, it could be mean a sort of delight. Um, it can mean a shared joke. And what I've discovered after 36 years in Finland is that we talk about communication. I think Finns can be extremely telepathic in a group. So suddenly they'll all start laughing. And as an outsider, you may have no idea what it is that they're laughing at, but they all know what it, what it is and what the shared joke is. So it's almost telepathic. So non-een, it, it just uh, varies in its meaning according to the circumstance. Very interesting. The, the word ah comes up for me now when you say that, when I think about it in English, because we can say ah, like surprise or ah, uh, as in not not very happy <laughs> with the maybe sudden surprise. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, another word that jumps out for me there is telepathic in communication. I remember reading recently something about, uh, I, I read a lot of neuroscience news articles about the brain and, and language and how we communicate and other areas. But there was something recently about that idea behind telep telepathy and, and communication and how we can connect, and I firmly believe this, we can connect without words. We don't need language or even noise to understand what another human being is feeling when we look at them with an open heart and an open mind. What would you say is the reason or, or what do you recognise in Finns that allows them to be so telepathic in a world that is now so noisy? Well, when I first came here, it was an extremely uh, homogenous and monocultural society. Things have evolved a lot, and I think in a very positive way. I mean, I was uh, just yesterday, I went for dinner with uh, an Australian friend who I knew in Finland over 30 years ago, uh, nearly 40 years, 30, well, 30, my first year, 36 years ago. And I've not seen him for about maybe 20 years. And we we're sitting outside um, on a terrace having some drinks and something to eat. And he said, gosh, it's, it's changed. It's so much more multicultural here. But that base um, homogeneity and monocultural uh, base is still there. And I think the telepathy is partly because Finns have typically had a very um, a shared set of values and ways of looking at the world. And the, I mean, of course, there are individual differences, but there are a lot of common uh, ways of uh, looking at, at things. And because they have such a shared system, in a way, underneath what's going on on the surface, that they sort of tap into that and they understand situations in the same way. Uh, I mean, in the UK, for example, with all the different cultural mix, you couldn't um, at all, if you got a random group of Brits together, um, uh, sort of rely on those shared assumptions. Whereas in Finland, you can very much rely on that, that sort of... Uh, uh, bedrock of shared assumptions. Ah, yes, I understand what you're saying. So we might explore this a little bit for listeners who who maybe haven't come across this concept and culture just yet. The the understanding that when a country has has been quite monocultural for many years or has a a long degree of shared history or maybe even distance from the world. So Japan comes up for me there that it was very much uh, not outside, but closed off from the world in some ways culturally for many, many years. So they have developed their own system of communication that a lot of the outside world doesn't necessarily understand without learning. Uh, how would you describe that to someone who has never come across this before? I, I think uh, the first 
stage in any cultural um, intervention is to understand your own culture. And people often you know, come to us and say, uh, we'd like to learn about this culture. I say, well, that's absolutely fine, but you need to understand first your own values. And we don't often sit around thinking about our shared values. They're just uh, something which we believe is innate. So I think that will be the first thing. But then um, as regards the sort of communication that um, isn't necessarily understandable to someone from outside, and I, I was actually going to mention Japan if you hadn't, and the, and the Finns and the Japanese actually have a lot in common in, in many ways, um, then um, it's often a matter of helping people who are quite literal and say what they mean and mean what they say understand that for some cultures um, what is not said is just as important and certainly that would apply to the Japanese and quite often to the Finns as well um, so uh, you know you were saying before about the fact that um, communication isn't just about words and um, in both those cultures silence speaks volumes yeah yeah silence speaks a thousand words I wrote to somebody in a message recently uh, could you we delve into that maybe a little bit more deeply? What do you mean there when you say silence speaks volumes in those cultures as compared to others? First of all, there, there tend to be quite a lot of pauses. Um, you know, turn-taking in both Finland and Japan is not the way that it is in um, quite a lot of uh, Western Europe, for example, or in the US. You know, when Americans are speaking and you analyse it with an oscilloscope, and you have a different line for each speaker, there's a lot of interruptive speech. Um, so silence, um, um, it, it, and it can mean different things, and that's the challenge with it. Um, does it mean agreement or disagreement? Does it mean that the person hasn't got an idea, or is it that they're formulating their ideas in silence? Because, for example, Italians, probably Spaniards as well, um, Brits, the Irish, we, we often think aloud. Uh, but you know, the Japanese and the Finns tend not to think aloud. Um, you ask a question, then they think, and then um, someone speaks uh, and answers. But the challenge if you're dealing with that sort of culture and you're more talkative is that you think they're not going to say anything. And so then you carry on speaking, and eventually they just get drowned in a sea of words. Um, and of course, you do get exceptions. I mean, I saw a fantastic short interview with Elon Musk the other day, and um, the interviewer asked him a question. It doesn't matter. I've, I've forgotten what the question was now. But he takes, I would say, at least 30 seconds to respond. And the interviewer handled it very well because he didn't interrupt. He just let the silence roll. And, you know, that silence, you could almost hear the, his mind thinking, but you didn't know what he was going to say. And eventually he, he answered. Um, and, you know, this is... This is uh, something that applies to so many areas of life. I mean, I read an article yesterday about um, interviews and the, the writer was saying that a lot of the, um, the, the information that you get on advice online about handling interviews, in his opinion, is wrong. And one of the things which he said is that, you know, often people say, don't leave any silences. And he said, that's wrong. If they ask you a question, then think until you're ready to give the answer, and probably the silence appears um, a lot more to you than it does to the person interviewing you. But if you immediately start speaking, well, you could say something that you then 
may uh, yourself disagree with and you have to correct it. And, you know, it might give the impression that you just speak because you feel you ought to speak. Whereas if you really think about it, it's building up the suspense and and the interviewer is likely to think, well, they've really thought about this topic. And so I'm going to really listen to the answer now because it's taken a lot of thought. So, uh, I just love that. So we give it a moment. <laughs> because <laughs> what we also need in pause is is that moment to assimilate, to reflect on what's been said, to maybe predict on what might be coming. I, I have a, an episode, actually, one of my first episodes on the podcast is on the power of pause. Uh, you mentioned a couple of particular areas there that I talked through. Uh, turn-taking as well. In, in the turn-taking episode, I spoke about Japan and, and uh, how turns are taken and maybe you need to invite somebody to speak. But you really bring in some powerful thought there about the pause. You, I think it... Sorry, I've interrupted you now, uh, but may I... Before, absolutely, before I, you're the guest. Before, before, before <laughs> I lose this uh, thought... Go for it. Um, a few years ago, I wrote an, an article trying to visualise communication um, in terms of different types of food. And why this happened is I was working in New Zealand uh, with a, a team. And in fact, the team leader was Australian. And they had to, you know, he had to make a very important presentation to a Japanese supplier. And so we did a whole session on Japan. And um, then I said, right, we'll do a role play now. I said, all your team pretend to be Japanese. Now, this means that you don't interrupt, that you know, some of you can have your eyes closed um, you uh, you know don't uh, uh, you take a while to answer any questions etc cetera, etc cetera, and uh, you're very polite and you smile and you nod and then he went off and he was talking about because it was a, an automobile company he was talking about the SUV market in New Zealand and um, his first attempt he said well you know the SUV market in New Zealand is very sophisticated in fact you know you could say that it goes back to the 1970s when we had this vehicle though some people say you could go even back further to this particular model now how's the market developed and he went on and on and on like this and going backwards and forwards in time and when he stopped he said how was that uh, well because he was Australian I knew that I could be um, you know pretty direct I said it was total crap <laughs> <laughs> And he said, yeah, I thought so. Um, you know, what can I do? I said, well, if I try and visualize uh, what you're doing, it's like uh, the Spanish, I can never pronounce this well, paella. Paella, um, si. Paella, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, a mix of uh, rice and chicken and shrimps and all sorts. It's a really interesting, but a total mix. I said, contrast that with a plate of sushi. And imagine a plate of sushi you know, the spaces between the different items are as important visually as the items themselves. And you take one piece at a time and you digest it and then you take another piece and the form is very important. So I said, let's try it again and imagine a plate of sushi while you're speaking. And he did it in a completely different way, which was, you know, turned out in the end to be very successful. So he said, um, the SUV market is a very important in New Zealand, pause. And then the Japanese came back and said, or his colleague came back and said, ah, so the SUV market is very important in New Zealand. And then he says, yes, it's very important in New Zealand. Ah, and, you know, the first vehicle appeared in, um, 
1973. Ah, 1973. Yeah, and you see the completely different pace. One idea at a time, like one sort of item on a plate of sushi, nothing like the paella of before. Both are perfectly fine, but how do people respond to it? And I would argue that in communication, if you come at least halfway towards the other person's style, then you've probably got a better chance of um, getting them to understand and persuading them. Absolutely. And connecting, I, I would add to that, that it, 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 this is very much uh, in, embedded in the work that I do. I, I work on four pillars of awareness, as I think I've talked to you a little bit about before. And the first step is that brain awareness and the self-awareness. When we, as you said, become aware of our own culture, our own uh, innate maybe qualities and innate is one for us to explore. Some people might agree and disagree on the innate and then take that and bring it outwards and start to look at those behaviours and qualities in another person and understand them from their perspective and their life experience or upbringing. We completely change how we perceive the world and, and how we then can find that way to connect with each other, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and that connection is so important. Mm, yeah. Mm, yeah. So it, let's let's go to that innate if we can. Uh, what I love to explore in this in this podcast, in my reading, and just in my general brain, sometimes when I sit and chat to myself, is the nature and nurture of things. For you, given that you've worked so broadly across the world with so many different types of culture and, and backgrounds and experiences. How much would you say of communication is nature and how much is nurture? There are basic things which are nature. Um, and I would say that, you know, an innate thing for any culture is that people do want to be understood. It's human nature, you know. I think very few people would be happy if no one understood them. Um, it could be very frustrating for both parties. So we want to be understood. But there's a, a huge effect of nurture in uh, what are the things which are important in our culture for being understood. So, you know, if you take Americans, and, you know, I'm generalizing here, and of course there are many different parts of American regions with, with big differences, but quite often it's about getting across your message quickly and simply um, you know, with an emphasis in, on business, on the bottom line, what's in it for, for you, what's in it for me. Um, so it's quite purposeful and direct communication. Um, Germans, on the other hand, and I think there's a link here between um, language and... And, and culture, because the German language is quite complex, it's a synthetic language where American English is very analytical, one idea at a time. Um, German, you know, these long sentences resolved by the verb at the end. I mean, Schopenhauer said that you can keep six ideas going in a German sentence for a very long time, that they like um, communication to be loaded with complexity. Um, and and I'm sure that that's learned rather than innate. And there's the, some sort of relationship with the language being complex. And so they tend not to trust American simple 
communication. I remember once uh, talking to a German at a, a university professor, and he said they got one American on the faculty, and they were having a faculty meeting about uh, what photocopier they should buy. And the Germans had brought in all these brochures and information and uh, were you know, expecting a, a really detailed, long meeting about this photocopier. And the American, he said, I could see him getting impatient. He said, come on. He says, back in the States, we use the, I don't know, the Canon, Canon XYZ. He said, come on, guys, let's not waste time on this. It's a kick-ass machine. And one of the Germans put his hand up and said, what means kick-ass? Well, it's very hard to translate because it's, it's such a non-Germanic concept. Um, it's not just translating the words. The whole idea of making a kick-ass decision is tends to be quite foreign to them. And then finally, you've got the cultures which, um, as we were talking about, the Japanese are uh, indirect, and communication isn't so much about exchanging information or building relationships, expressing opinions. About, it's about listening and creating a sense of harmony, um, which is you know very different. And that's why people can very often get confused by the Japanese because, you know, when does yes mean no, for instance? Yeah. Yeah, I talked about this with a client this week, actually, who's on her way to Singapore to facilitate some training. And uh, this was a big part of it where she recognized that they don't say no necessarily, or if they do say no, it's no said in a very different way that needs to be interpreted. Like you said earlier, what's been said behind the words. Um, you said something there that made me think or remember. Yeah, German, two things. Uh, one was, I wonder where my love of complexity in language comes from then, because I have to focus on simplifying my sentences and speaking in shorter bursts, being succinct. And when I did the Culture Active Profile, I, of course, looked at how I compared with many different cultures so that I could understand where where my communication might need adjustment in more areas. And I come out quite strongly as being uh, in a similar vein as, as the Germans. So I started to understand why I maybe get on well with Germans now, as you've just said what you've said, because I can, I can understand that form of communication. But another thing you mentioned was about that meeting with the Germans and the, them bringing in all of the documents and all of the information, the American just wanting to make the decision. I read a post a month or two ago from somebody on LinkedIn who's in the area of cross-cultural communication as well, telling German companies that if they want to work globally, they have to adapt to the, well, not globally, if they want to work in America, they have to adapt to the American way. They need to become less serious. They need to become less detailed. All these things that the Germans need to do differently as opposed to maybe saying that the Americans could learn how to work with Europe a little bit better or a, a little bit differently. Let's not say better. What's better really actually mean? What do you think of that? As the world globalizes more and we move now into this change in communication over, over the years, what would you say to companies coming out of America and companies coming out of Europe going into each other's pockets I suppose is really where they're going and how they can adapt people often ask me why should I adapt 
my question is, well, because I'm dealing mainly with business, in this business negotiation, who needs whom more? Oh, great one, yeah. Um, you know, for example, I worked for a while with a Finnish company that were trying to get investment from Thailand. And it was extremely difficult to get the Finns to understand why they should adapt. I said, look, you're a startup looking for investment. I've put you in touch with a Thai family that are worth 37 billion US dollars. Um, and this was through a contact of mine. And I said, at the last meeting, when you, um, they asked you, could this product be used to help the matriarch? It was a medical product. Um, at the head of the family. Previously, you said um, that you thought it, it could help. Um, and, you know, my Thai intermediary had gone back to the family and you know, the Thais like to put a positive things on, uh, spin on things and had said, yes, they can definitely help. Well, immediately you get some miscommunication. So then in this meeting a few months later, um, my intermediary from Thailand with um, representatives of the family there um, said, so you can cure the mother. And my Finnish CEO said, no, no, we can't. And I could see my Thai intermediary losing face. And I thought, I've got to jump in here. And so I said, well, what he means by no is that they respect the mother so much that they don't want to do anything rash and before they can give a positive answer, they'd need to send a surgeon from Finland to examine her and, um, and um, you know, make some decisions on this specific case. So he just didn't want to build up false hopes. Um, of course, they, you know, they very well may be able to help, but they couldn't just say yes, because that might be promising more than they could deliver. So then I turned to my Finnish um, CEO, and said, that's right, isn't it, um, Timo? He said, well, maybe we can use mother as guinea pig. Okay, okay, that's... that's... So he's suddenly calling this yeah. woman a guinea pig. So, uh, I mean, in desperation, I said, being a medical guinea pig is a great honour in Finland. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I said to him afterwards, you know, why on earth couldn't you be a little bit more uh, ambiguous? Because the Thais are happy with ambiguity and, and positive. He said, because it is not the truth. I said, look, I said, they're prepared to invest 120 million euros in your company and you won't adapt. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I do think it's very much to do in business with, um, you know, who needs to adapt to whom which party needs the other party more. And, um, you know, if you need them more, then you would really do well to think about how you could modify your communication. Absolutely. The brain comes into mind here now when you say this. And I wonder, would your Finnish startup have potentially been coming from a place of ego where they needed the, the finance and the money, but didn't want to be the ones who needed the finance and the money. And so it was a bit of status maybe that made them not want to adapt. 
Yeah, I, I think that was part of it. But I think an underlying issue was that um, the Finns were finding it quite difficult to trust the ties um, because they were so different. And underlying things is a sort of hesitancy, even though all this money was on offer. Um, and on the other hand, the ties were finding it quite difficult to trust the Finns because in this case they thought they'd change their mind. In fact, they hadn't. Um, you know, the message had been exaggerated when it went back. Um, and then also, the one reason they found it difficult to trust the Finns was because the Finns were, um, looked so serious. And, you know, my contact would come back to me after a meeting saying, can't you get them to smile a bit? Um, you know, as ties, if we see a, a row of unsmiling faces, we start to um, lose trust and and stop them bombarding us with all these facts. We're not interested in the facts at this stage. We just want to think about, are these people that we could do business with? Are they people we like? And we're having great problems liking them at the moment. Wow. Yeah, and this really goes back to that, the importance of trust and building that trust over time. And part of that, I, I did the, something on the trust equation yesterday with a client. Part of that building of trust is the the adaptation, showing up for the other person, being able to hold yourself back in some of the behaviours and mannerisms that might be natural or normal for you, recognising that the other person needs something different and a adapting in that way. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, I'll give you another story. example. I'll give you another example of trust, and, and this is with the... Uh, Germans and the Indians and it's a German lady who was on my programs and in the break she said look can you explain something very puzzling uh, she said I've got a team working for me in India all Indian and the other day I contacted the Indian team leader and said is the project ready yet and he replied yes it is ready but not yet Oh, wow. Oh, this is brilliant. I, I spoke to an Indian lady yesterday who I did some training with a few years ago and I asked her for one tip on dealing with if I, I was to, helping her to kind of bring out in herself a bit of uh, speed and ease in creating content. So I said, OK, just one tip. One thing you would tell me if I had an Indian client who was dealing with an American, what would it be? Say what you mean, because Indians don't say no. So that's amazing that you say that. I'm sorry to cut across you, but it, it just brought up that example there. So she, she said... He said, no, or yes, it is ready, but not yet. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and for, the, for you know, this German lady, she said, uh, and of course, Westerners, and particularly cultures like the Germans and the Americans, well, the very linear cultures, it's almost binary that something is either true or it's not true. But for the Indian, um, Indians have a sort of... Um, uh, multipolar object uh, truth in yeah, a way, flexible kind sure of truth. Yeah. It, well, it's flexible and it's it's ambiguous because things can be both true and untrue at the same time. And in fact, Schopenhauer was very interested in India. And although he was German, he said the true sign of intelligence is to understand that things can be both true and untrue at the same time. So when I've asked Indians about this, they said, "Well, first of all, she's forcing me into a Western binary corner by saying, is the project ready yet?' And the answer has to be yes or no. Well." If I say no, that's not really true because we know that it's going to be ready on time. We're going to bring in some extra people over the weekend and we'll sort it out in a typical Indian way. So if I say no, 
she's going to have a negative impression of me. But she shouldn't be having a negative impression of me. She should be having a positive impression of me. So I'm going to say yes first and then qualify it and say, well, it's not yet. But, you know, the main message is the truth is it will be ready in time. That's brilliant. And just so proves how important it is to bring in this awareness of culture, the cultural understanding, the human understanding. And as you said, starting from ourselves first. So if we we circle a little bit now, because we haven't too much gone into communication through the ages, although we've gone into communication through ages across the world, I think different different cultures, different uh, even age ranges actually matter, of course, as we know how we communicate to somebody older than us in Korea and Japan differs to how I might communicate with you, for example, with different languages. But looking at communication through the ages, what would you say for you has been the biggest change you have witnessed? Okay, well, um, I mean, obviously it's a massive topic and and, and the pace of change does um, vary across uh, different cultures. But if we take English as an example, well, First of all, um, linguistically, um, the English language is fascinating. Um, you know, my speciality at university was Anglo-Saxon, which was English as um, spoken a thousand years ago. Um, and you know, modern-day um, English speakers, uh, if they hadn't studied it, they'd understand almost not a single word. I mean, it sounds like um, you know Icelandic or uh, Old Norse or something. Um, have you ever heard any old English? I don't know if I've heard it. I, I must have heard it at some point. We were studying with mum years ago. I mean, if I, if, I, if I just give you a couple of sentences. Oh, go for it. I'd love it, and, yes. And th- this is from a, a, an Anglo-Saxon poem. Um, so about a thousand years old. Oftim anhaga ara yabideth matudas milseth the himod kierig yonder lagulada longa shoulder rörn mit hondam hrim kaltna sa. Wow. Long shoulder, I heard. <laughs> well, well, yeah. Well, 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 what it actually means is it's often the solitary man experiences mercy, uh, the kindness of the Lord, although he shoulder should. He's an old English uh, shoulder, like should, shall, yeah, 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 should uh, or or had to um, stir with his hands the frosty or rimy cold sea. Um, so you go straight back into some you know, ancient uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon in a boat in an ICC. Yeah, but also um, then that inference that you need in in those words, they're not uh, they're not very direct and clear. You have to pull in the meaning. They're poetic, I suppose, as you said. It's from a it poem. It's poetic, and you know, and and the str- the the way in which English was. Um, uh, stressed at that point um, was that the uh, the stress was always on the first syllable. Mm, do, do, um, do, now, do, 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 as you yeah, did, yeah. Uh, and, uh-huh. and, and when um, Italian, French, Latin started influencing English, the stress moved further down. I mean, you know, in, in Italian, the stress is quite often on the third syllable. Um, English, it's the first. French, it's quite often the second syllable. Um, I mean, there's not hard for fast rules. So what I'm saying that for me, um, one big illumination about English was how much it's changed. Um, and, you know, by the time we got to Elizabethan England, um, a lot of 
you know, modern English speakers would understand it. Um, the things that I've experienced, uh, I mean, even if you go back um, 30, 40 years, um, or even less in some cases, um, the way in which English is spoken is rather different. Um, it is, in general, simpler, less complex, um, very different accents. I mean, if you heard the late Queen talking shortly before she died compared to how she was in the 1950s, it's a very different pronunciation and, and accent. Oh, um, that's interesting. You know, so even her, it, what we call the received pronunciation, yeah, ju- sorry yeah, to cut across, ju- it was just to, out of interest there, to, to ch- her pronunciation it, Yeah, changed. even that changed quite a lot. Oh, in what uh, way? I, Could you give an example? Well, it was a lot more clipped in the past. I mean, I can't imitate it, unfortunately, but it was a lot more sort of clipped um, and it sort of relaxed as she got older. Oh, when you um, say clipped I'm, there, just for listeners, maybe... Yeah. You, do you mean quite precise like yes, that? Yes, very precise, yes. And, you know, like this. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, if you even listen to interviews with Freddie Mercury, um, it's staggering. You listen to interviews with him from the, the 70s or whatever, and he sounds ever so posh. <laughs> I think I did listen to him years ago and was quite surprised because my stepdad loved uh, Freddie Mercury when we were younger. Yeah, so the... Um, so, you know, even during my lifetime, the way in which people speak has changed. Um, and then sociolinguistics, um, you know, nowadays, it's hard to get a job at the BBC if you speak received pronunciation, because they want to bring in more local sounding regional accents. Um, so the, you know, the young royals um, uh, speaking with a sort of estuary English and the Harry now, a mixture of estuary English and, uh, and California. Um, so, you know, that would have been unthinkable um, um, years, years ago. And when you say estuary English there, just for listeners. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, um, it's sort of the English that's spoken in counties like Essex. Um, so it's not quite London, but it's um, a particular local accent, which is associated with lower classes. So some of the younger royals have started imitating lower class um, accents. Tony Blair did it. Um, you know, he, he, linguistically, he was a great seducer, and he started using estuary. You know, actually, he was a very posh Scot, and the really posh Scots from Edinburgh speak very, very received pronunciation. Um, and so he had that, and then it changed to um, you know using glottal stops, yeah, and longer vowel sounds. Right. Is one example. Okay, yeah, I have a great so video got... on the glottal stop in my, in my oh, online training lo- platform. Actually, I, I I can. I love the, I love the glottal glottal yeah, stop. Yeah, it's a good one. But it's hard for people who don't know it. So yeah, it's in there, listeners. If you ever want to learn more about pronunciation, you can go to phenomenalpresenters.com and learn about the glottal stop. But you, I know you were going to say something more there. Do you mind if I jump to two words you used because I thought they were brilliant, and for people who are listening and learning to communicate for themselves in different ways, but also across cultures and in their careers. You said Tony Blair was a linguistic, a great linguistic seducer. And this is fabulous and really brings home reasons why it's important and so beneficial to learn how to use the voice as an instrument, not just communication, not just learning culture, but actually the tool. So what do you mean when you say he was a linguistic seducer? 
Well, it was partly voice. I mean, he was very good at delivering. Um, he was very good to begin with, and of course, things changed a lot in his um, general reputation following the, um, you know, the invasion of Iraq and, and all, everything associated with that. But he was very good at getting people to trust him. He was good at engaging people's emotions. Um, he was good at using um, uh, phrases or slogans to um, get people on board. Um, so he was a very good rhetorician. Um, um, and so I suppose that's what I'd mean. But voice is so important. I mean, I, I'm not sure if I ever told him, but my main tutor at university, um, he had a side job for about 10 years uh, as voice coach to Margaret Thatcher. And um, um, what happened with her was fascinating. It was because he, um, she'd already had some voice training from a guy who tried to get her to lower her voice. Because initially, you know, when she first came on the scene, uh, you know, the first sort of act which got her on the front pages was taking uh, uh, milk from school children. So you used to get a free bottle of milk every day at school, and she stopped it because it was too much of an expense. So she, her first nickname was Margaret Thatcher Milk Snatcher. And um, she was also criticized for sounding very strident, um, you know, quite high-pitched and loud and aggressive. And so they brought in a coach to try and get her to lower her voice. Now, the problem was that the way in which he did it, he tried to make her do it consciously. And this probably reduced about 10% of her message because she was trying to, uh, she was thinking about her voice. What my old tutor specialized in, and he also set up the Oxford School of Drama, um, was he was a great um, supporter of um, Stanislavski and the uh, method acting. And some actors really like it, some actors hate it. It was a big division. And so what he would get her to do was to like run a mental cinema through her head. And when she was talking about something positive, you get people to think about the most positive thing that they um, has happened to them. Or if they're trying to be very serious and negative, they have to think about something that was uh, difficult in their life. And um, But they're not actually focusing on physically changing the voice. But the voice and the facial expressions, so the theory goes, change automatically because of that. And, you know, if you've ever wondered when you see people in close-up in, in cinema um, and you know what they're thinking from the, the expressions that are running across their face, well, they can't sort of be thinking, right, now I'd better move my lips in this way, I'd better, uh, you know, narrow my eyes or whatever. What they tend to be doing, um, in whichever way they do it, is is putting themselves in that situation so the right facial impressions um, expressions come anyway. Absolutely, um, yeah. But voice is so important. Yeah, I really great explanation there of bringing somebody into the connection between tone and emotion. You know, we talk about tone quality and tone color in drama and in the speech training that I've done. And when we connect in with the emotion inside our bodies, oh, I'm very excited. This is how I feel. So my pitch goes up a little bit. My pace increases. I don't pause quite as much. My eyes open. My shoulders even rise a little bit, as does my body. And then the sadness comes and everything becomes more dejected and 
drops down. Yeah, really great example. Fantastic. So the the key change you have seen from a language perspective has been how English has changed throughout the ages. That, yeah, that's I mean, great. I had one one more very brief thing which has happened in the last um, maybe five to ten years, which is, um, um, well, first of all, the young people hardly ever speak on the phone. They're texting. And so this linguistic move from speaking, you know, actually with your voice to texting and all the complexities that that um, involves. And, um, you know, I, I still quite often have to, when I get a text from my kids, they use some acronym and I've got to look it up to make sure I've got it right. Um, and then, you know, I put full stops. At the, you know, I tend to write on a text the same way that I write in a, in a letter and I put a full stop and the kids say, why are you so aggressive? So what do you mean? Well, full stop's really aggressive. You shouldn't put punctuation at oh, the end. Well. Say, well, and then, you know, I mean, I've heard of some awful stories. You know, there was one quite a few years ago now. Um, you know, the, the expression LOL, L-O-L. Uh-huh. And uh, this lady, she'd written to the paper saying she's, you know, so confused, something awful happened to her that a young relative had um, or friend had written to her a text saying that one of their close relatives had just di died. And she replied, lol. She thought it meant lots of love, which I thought it meant originally. I, I don't know if I ever got that one wrong because I, I had younger sisters who used quite a few of these acronyms. But... Yeah, I, I've actually had to reply to one of my sisters before and say, can you please write that in English? Because I can't understand your message. There are too many of them in there. Yeah, th that's a really good point. And you are the third person now that I have interviewed about these particular types of changes. Each person has said the, the shift uh, either from speaking on the phone to text and to written language or um, the change from... I think it was postcards we, we mentioned twice in two of the episodes to, again, the text. And what, what impact do you think that has had on connection, that change from speaking on the phone to writing everything? I, I always sort of tend to sit on the fence with these things. I mean, my natural instinct is to be quite old-fashioned and prescriptive and, um, you know, it annoys me in a way. But on the other hand, I can see some of the advantages of it. And um, you know, if I think about our family, we communicate constantly in a group on Telegram. Um, and we've got this Telegram group, which is just for family members. And we're in touch all the time. Um, you know, little messages going, flying. So it's brought us closer together. I mean, if you imagine in the old days when you'd have to actually go and see someone or write to them or, or pick up the telephone and they might not be around or it might be, not be convenient, um, it certainly improved communication within the family. Um, so I, I see the positive sides of it as well. Um, I think it's a pity that people don't use a pen as much as they used to. Um, I mean, I use one every day. When I take notes, I have to use a pen. Um, because I remember it better. The physical act of writing makes, and I may never look at the notes again, but because I've written them, it, they've you know gone into the, the memory. Yeah, it encodes um, it in the brain, this, this, that, that practice of encoding. Yeah, that's a really good point. We have 
multiple groups, if I'm totally honest, because I come from a, a separated family. So we have a, a family group for my dad's side of the family. We have a family group for my mom's side of the family with the fiancés and the husbands. Then we have another one on my mom's side without the fiancés and the husbands. I'm not sure they know that. Uh, we have one for each of the nieces. Now, there are only three at the moment, but that's actually become a little bit like my television. I don't really watch TV much. And when I need a lovely kick or, or a, a boost of oxytocin, I'll go in and I'll watch some of the videos of my nieces and nephews and you get a you get a great sense of connection from that. That's a really good point. So b- before I ask you a closing question, um, is there anything else that you that comes to mind for you when you think about communication through the ages that you feel would be important for listeners to consider? <laughs> well, funnily enough, there was something, but I forgot what it was now. Uh, that's <laughs> <all right>. <laughs> <laughs> it might come back to me that's at some okay, point. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah, but I think we've uh, you know we've covered quite um, a, a, a bit of a bit of ground. We have indeed, um, and there's lots more to cover over the next few years and different series as I explore more language and and culture and other aspects of communication. So the last question then is, the podcast is called Connected Communication. And as I said, we explore the nature and nurture of communication. So what does the term connected communication mean to you? Coming from, uh, oh, not coming from, but living in Finland, um, I thought there was a extremely um, a good um, slogan that Nokia used to use. Um, do you remember what it was? Um, connecting people. Oh, yes, I do. Connecting people. Yes. Nokia, connecting people. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I, I once saw a little um, shop in India which had the the Nokia um, uh, logo there perfectly. And underneath, in perfect the right font and everything, it says it said concocting poople. Um, <laughs> concocting poople, which I thought was very cute. Brilliant. Um, so um, a connected communication uh, of course there are many meanings you could ascribe to it um, for, for me in the current context of where we are um, I would go with the the message behind the Nokia one that it's in the end we've got all this new technology um, people have their favorite platforms. You know, when I'm communicating with my friends in, and colleagues in China, I use WeChat in Bangkok. It's uh, in, in, in Thailand, it's WhatsApp. Um, you know, with um, a lot of my business contacts in Europe, it's still email. Um, but beyond the technology, it is about um, connecting people. And it's about, and so for me, connected communication, um, I do think it's very positive that um, we've got these different tools to to make connections. I mean, if you, you think about how we met, um, you know, if it wasn't for LinkedIn, we'd have never met. Um, well, never say never. Well, that's you never my, know. That's I'm, my take on it. I'm, I'm, yeah, a bit, I'm not right. a big one for the universal well, qualifier. Yeah, okay. But, but yeah, okay. uh, maybe not in but the it, way it, that we it, did and not, not at in the, the time. Not in the way that, and it, it, yeah, not at the time. <laughs> no. I mean, it, you know, but perhaps we would have, yeah, I, I'm, I, I agree. I'm not such a believer in coincidence. I think sometimes things are meant to happen. Oh, yeah, but, absolutely. Um, I don't believe in coincidence. Um, so, um, so I would say it's very much about that. Um, I've remembered now what it was I want to say. It's a sort of minor point. But um, when you've got, uh, you know, when I've got my kids and whatever saying, oh, don't you know this, this uh, acronym? I give them a few from the 1970s that I 
used. Oh, lovely. And say, can you guess what these are? And they've got no idea. I said, well, you see, I'm in the same position. Um, I mean, I bet you, I, I, I'd be interested to see if you remember this Go one. for it. Now, I wasn't born in the 70s, right, to give well, myself know, a I bit know, of fairness, well, but no, it came a no, bit I, after I, I know you won't, but, <laughs> won't, but it, it might have continued a little bit longer. Cool. Okay, uh, okay, okay brilliant. Yes, yeah. let's go. I, I certainly wasn't implying you were born in the 70s. <laughs> no, that's grand. <laughs> I, I, it's all um, a number, but it's, uh, it's that's yeah. my defence mechanism for, <laughs> if I don't know this, there's a reason why. <laughs> Okay, uh, let's, um, let's well, try. Uh, it's uh, Swalk, S-W-A-L-K. Yes. Sealed with a loving kiss. Ah, well, so you were still using that we in were. Ireland. We were. We used to, yeah. at school, we would send little notes to our friends yeah. and you would close the note and you'd write over the folded part, the S-W-A-L-K, so that it yeah. was clo- that's how the note was closed and when they opened it, they got their loving kiss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 All right. Okay. Great. Good. Well, it. my kids had my kids had absolutely no idea. Brilliant. Well, um, there you go. That's one. Maybe yeah. people listening to this podcast now will start using it again, and we'll bring it back yeah. into fashion. <laughs> <laughs> Were there any more? Now I'm now I'm uh, interested. I can't can't think <laughs> at the top of my head. I think one's enough. That's, okay, that'll do. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. Uh, as always, the wisdom that you share, the lessons that I learned when speaking with you. I'm looking forward to developing myself as a culture active trainer later in the year with you as well. Um, how can people find you? What can they do with you in terms of training? What, what are yeah, the best well, places? The, the, the best way to find me is on LinkedIn. Um, I, I still, you know, I set up on my own about three years ago. I've been too busy to put a website together. I, I'm also, you know, I'm not a, a bit of a techno turkey and everything. So I I, I haven't been able to face it, and and uh, most of my business is word of mouth. But my LinkedIn page is quite extensive, and if you just um, type in Google Michael Gates LinkedIn, it should come up. Perfect, perfect. And anything that you'd like to say about training or your culture active? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, program? I offer offer all sorts of things, um, and um, you know, culture specific workshops, culture general, um, cultural coaching. Um, culture linked to negotiation, culture linked to teams, um, and it's all tailor-made. So, um, I mean, for me, you know, potential clients have problems which they either know about or they don't yet know about. They don't realize that they've got something coming. And um, and so, really, my perspective is to listen to what you need as a client. And, um, and if I think I can help, then I make a suggestion. But I don't like bombarding people with loads of material. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And again, I think part of why we connect so well, because me coming up and into my own, I suppose, as a as a cultural communication coach and other areas, you battle with yourself a little bit between the, I need to create a website and I need to demonstrate all of this stuff and what I do and how I can do it. And actually what I do is the same as you bespoke. It's because I can build it. But as soon as I speak to somebody, they tell me something and okay, well, we can use bits of this, but it has to be developed for for your needs. I love it. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Anybody who's listening, the information to find Michael will also be in the show notes today. So you can click the links there and find him a bit more easily. I, again, am very grateful to you for being here. I will normally close the show with saying if you have listened and enjoyed, please do review the show by giving it whatever number of stars over three you would like to give it on iTunes. 
and press the star button on Spotify. Give it a follow and a subscribe. Let it get downloaded on your phone or, or on your device to support the show. Share it with your friends. Share it with others. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Banak Ti. August Buikas. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much, Chrissy.